I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. Having just taken the Lord's Supper together, it is purely providence that today we look at the institution of that supper. And so, apparently God wants those of us in Crossroads to think twice about the Lord's Supper. Um, and taking it an hour ago and then now in thinking about what the meaning of that meal is. And I don't think we think about the Lord's Supper very carefully, very often. I thought uh, Mike did a good job this morning, even in a quick way, kind of outlining the importance of self-examination. But what I'm eager to do this morning is to show you this meal in its first institution. It's a first and last Meal. You know the painting, The Last Supper? Well, that's, that's what the scene that's before us. And though this isn't the Italian Renaissance version with the fancy robes and uh, the famous you know, colors and, and whatnot that comes into your mind when you think of it, this is, this is genuinely Jesus' last meal because this very night he'll be arrested and put to trial through the night and the next morning. And so it's Thursday evening and, and Jesus is... Uh, answering really the the issue that's on all his Jewish disciples' minds, which is where are we going to celebrate the Passover feast? And so Mark 14, verse 12 to 26 is the text. A lot going on here, but so much to instruct our hearts in this regular celebration and observation of the supper. That's one of these visible ways that God shows us the gospel. So Mark 14, starting in verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare so that you may eat the Passover lamb? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he goes in, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover lamb with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover lamb. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him one by one, Is it I? And he said to them, One of the twelve who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man goes that it's written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for by whom it would have been better if that man had he not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the very word of the living God. I don't know that we think very carefully about the Lord's Supper, one of the most contentious, debated, and important issues in the history of Christian theology. The Roman Catholic idea of transubstantiation, uh, Lutheran concepts of consubstantiation, all of the debates that have gone in the history of the church are probably not at the forefront of most Christians' minds who... Their familiarity with the Lord's Supper is the kind of modern manifestation of the version, which is those tiny, tiny, tiny little crackers and those very snappable little cups. And, and I think for most of you, unless you grew up in a, in a very different tradition, like a, a Roman Catholic one or uh, maybe in a different culture, uh, the Lord's Supper doesn't look much like a supper to you, doesn't look like much a meal to you. But you certainly are aware of its, of its sacredness. You're aware of the seriousness and the sobriety of it. Uh, it doesn't, at our church, certainly not a slapshot event. It's not something that's, that's taken lightly. Uh, and so one of the things that I'd like to do just in, in way of kind of getting our minds around this thing that we just experienced is to get a glimpse from the past of how the Lord's Supper was viewed by one young man, who was about your age, uh, he, we always think of him as a, an older, um, bearded, heavy-set individual, a uh, Baptist preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. But there was a time when Spurgeon was a teenager, a young man, and it was his encounter with an Anglican priest uh, that convinced Spurgeon to be a Baptist. And Spurgeon's understanding of baptism and his understanding of the Lord's Supper came together. In Jeffrey Chang's book uh, called Spurgeon the Pastor, Recovering a Biblical and Theological Vision for Ministry, he describes this in one of the chapters. I'll read you a page of it. It says, it was an Anglican priest that pushed Spurgeon toward becoming a Baptist. I wonder if fellow clergyman ever gave that priest a hard time in future years. Born into a Congregationalist family, Spurgeon was baptized as an infant by his grandfather, But as a child, Spurgeon often puzzled over the practice. To him, the baptismal basin looked more like a punch bowl. He heard of some who had qualms about infant baptism and were baptized as believers quietly at some other chapel. On one occasion, he saw a sick infant rush to be baptized, which he found strange. As he got older and learned a little Greek, he could not find the word baptizo to mean sprinkle. Despite his questions, however, it was no small thing for him to contradict his family on this issue. If his grandfather and parents believed in infant baptism, who was he to disagree? Spurgeon was content to leave the issue alone. That is, until this Anglican priest came along. When he was 14 years old, Spurgeon was sent to St. Augustine's College, Maidstone, a Church of England school where his uncle served as the headmaster. Spurgeon was bright and a bit cheeky at times. Perhaps to put this know-it-all dissenter in his place, 
one of the priests tested Spurgeon on baptism from the church's catechism. What is required of persons to be baptized? Spurgeon knew the answer. Repentance, whereby they forsake sin, and faith, whereby they steadfastly believe the promises of God made to them in the sacrament. Because repentance and faith are necessary for baptism, the Church of England required sponsors to make promises on behalf of the infant, a practice not required by Congregationalists. The priest concluded, Now, Charles, I shall give you till next week to find out whether the Bible does not declare faith and repentance to be necessary qualifications before baptism. Spurgeon went away looking for infant baptism in his New Testament, but could not find it. I was beaten, he confessed, and made up my mind as to the course I would take. I resolved from that moment that if ever divine grace should work a change in me, I would be baptized. Spurgeon became convinced of the Baptist position. Now you're wondering, what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? I'll continue. In the spring of 1850, after his conversion, Spurgeon joined the Congregationalist Church in Newmarket. There was no Baptist church in that town. Whereas previously he'd been content just to attend, Spurgeon now looked forward to full participation in the church. This, however, created a dilemma. The church accepted him into membership by virtue of his baptism as an infant. They now expected him to participate in the Lord's Supper. But Spurgeon no longer found his infant baptism valid. Like Christians before him, he understood that the New Testament required baptism as a prerequisite to participation in the Lord's Supper. Therefore, being unbaptized, Spurgeon refrained from the table to the surprise of the pastor and other church members. So, after joining the church, Spurgeon set about finding a Baptist minister. W.H. Cantlow was a classmate of Spurgeon's at Newmarket, and his father, W.W. Cantlow, was the nearest Baptist minister serving in Isleham. Through that connection, Spurgeon made the necessary arrangements for baptism. From the correspondence we have leading up to his baptism, it appears that Spurgeon's father didn't entirely approve and kept him in suspense waiting for his approval. Certainly, Spurgeon believed baptism to be a matter of obedience to Christ, but at the same time, he did not wish to dishonor his parents. His father did finally give permission, though Spurgeon recalls that he was rather hard upon me. So on May 3rd, 1850, Spurgeon and W.H. Cantlow walked the eight miles from Newmarket to the River Lark and was baptized. Spurgeon would later write, My timidity was washed away. It floated down the river into the sea and must have been devoured by the fishes, for I've never felt anything of the kind since. Baptism also loosened my tongue, and from that day it has never been quiet. I lost a thousand fears in that river Lark, and found that in keeping his commandments, there is great reward. On the following day, May 5th, Spurgeon participated in the Lord's Supper for the first time. He wrote, This afternoon, I partook of the Lord's Supper, a royal feast for me, worthy of a king's son. A royal feast for me, worthy of of a king's son. Spurgeon found in the ordinances a word maybe that's unfamiliar to you. Maybe you know the word sacraments. That's kind of the Catholic word for those things which God has given us that Jesus left for us to practice. 
For those of Baptist persuasion, there's two ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and Spurgeon understood how serious these were. And as he waited on the Lord to work in his heart savingly, as he, as he sought after repentance and trusting in Christ and became a Christian, uh, Spurgeon saw these two practices of baptism as the Lord's Supper as, as focal points and places of entry into his newfound Christian faith. Having been born again by the Spirit of God, having been converted and regenerated, Spurgeon began to see these two events as crucial for his spiritual health and his Christian experience. His parents, though they were believers, they didn't believe in believer's baptism, but infant baptism. His mom would later say when she found out Charles had been baptized, Ah, Charles, I often prayed the Lord might make you a Christian, but I never asked that you might become a Baptist. And Spurgeon responded famously, he said, Oh, mother, the Lord has answered your prayer with his usual bounty and given you exceedingly abundantly above what you asked or thought. (laughs) And thinking of, I just give you that that kind of lengthy treatment of Spurgeon's baptism and its relationship to the Lord's Supper because I love how severe his thinking is, how, how thoughtful, how careful. I mean, this isn't just a religious practice of, of insignificance. But the Lord's Supper for a believer takes on such a serious tone. And in it, there's a, a dark side to it because it's a, a contemplation of the death of Christ, of the weight of our sin. There's a, a pensive side to it where we're involved in self-examination of our own hearts But there's equally a joyful celebration to it because the meal finds itself rooted and grounded in the salvation that God worked for his people and then the ultimate expression of that salvation at the cross of Christ. The supper also has this forward-looking element to it, as we saw in in Mark 14, and we'll look at in a moment, that whenever you, you do this meal, you remember how incomplete our Christian life is that there's something coming in the future that's greater. And this meal is an expression of a, a, a more wonderful meal, a more lasting meal that we'll have in heaven with Christ as we eagerly anticipate His return. And so it'd be my, my hope today that we would take the Lord's Supper more seriously. And I realize that you know there's, there's crumbs on your shirt and grape juice on the back of your mouth right now. And we're talking about something that just happened, but maybe that's even better because no matter how long it'll be until you take the Lord's Supper again, I hope that this reminder of the institution of it gives you some foundational understanding. Before you can understand Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 saying uh, to the Corinthians, you know, a rebuke about how they mishandled the Lord's Supper, that they weren't there to devour and feast and push in front of each other in line, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 22. He reminds them as a counterbalance to their ill practice that they need to remember why it was given in the first place. And in the passage read for us in church this morning, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, 
Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you also, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Occurring in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this same phrases and words of institution that the Lord gave are brought before these early Christians to show them that understanding the foundation of the Lord's Supper, the establishment of it, the institution of it, that last supper that became the first supper is crucial to practicing it in a way that's right and worthy and biblical and honoring to God. It's not until Paul talks about the institution of the supper that he talks about the necessary examination that should accompany it. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven: Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord, that we might not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I'll set in order when I come. The emphasis on this examination is founded in the institution of the Lord's Supper and any other mention of communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper in the Bible or in church history has to find its origin in Jesus's establishment of it. And so when the early church devoted themselves, Acts 2 verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. This devotion to the Lord's Supper finds its source in Jesus's establishing of this meal. And the context of this meal, as it comes to us in Mark 14, is the very night of Jesus's arrest, his betrayal and his arrest, And the way that Mark frames this passage, verses 12 through 26, is framed around the the drama of the the moment of this, this meeting, the city packed with travelers, Judas working his nefarious kind of plan in the background throughout, and then finally this this forward-looking glimpse at a, at a new kingdom to come. So as we look at Mark 14, verses 12 to 26, uh, I just have three, three elements that I want you to see in, in the elements, in the institution of the Lord's Supper. And I would like you to understand this about what, what's being emphasized here. And there's so much rich truth here, but I hope this is helpful and foundational in your understanding of why you take the Lord's Supper, why it's important that you are a a part of a church, a baptized believer, and as someone who's been saved from your sins and forgiven by Jesus, this supper should be a priority for us, something that we understand, something that we employ in our Christian lives, something that God uses to sustain us and give us grace. And so first off, I want you to see the proclamation and celebration 
of Jesus' death. The proclamation and celebration of Jesus' saving death. The proclamation and celebration of Jesus' saving death. Look how this passage begins in verse 12. Uh, There's a description of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover lamb is mentioned repeatedly. Look at verse 12. It says that you may eat the Passover lamb, the disciples question. It's brought up again in Jesus' words in verse 14, that I may eat the Passover lamb. Uh, Again in verse 16, and they prepared the Passover lamb. I mean, the the context of this, it wasn't paintable. There was a a marked chaos in the scene. Remember, we're coming off of the week of Jesus' controversies, of constant confrontation between the religious leaders and Jesus as he spars with them in the temple every day of the week. And now finally, in this evening, as he's uh, trying to set up this, this last moment of his life, this last meal of his life, this last opportunity to have an intimate time with his disciples, a time that was rich with teaching. Uh, John 13 through 17 chapters of instruction called the Upper Room Discourse would take place during this meal, leading up to this meal, throughout this, this evening together. I mean, this is such an important moment, but you have to feel the, the drama of what's happening. And the way you get that is, is through this repeated mention of the Passover lamb. And because you're probably not, you know, uh, Jewish, uh, most of you, you, you don't think about it this way. I mean, this is, this is such a, a massive holiday for them. Uh, this, is, this is like, you know, it's Christmas Eve and there's no presents yet. And you would feel the, the, the danger of that. You'd feel the, the drama of that because the streets are packed and people have already shopped and, and the Tickle Me Elmos are gone or, or whatever it is that people are looking for. And, and, and that's, that's the, the, the scene here. The disciples are burdened by the reality that this is something that's usually figured out in advance. You, you can't just get a lamb easy here because... It's packed. Jerusalem is full of people. And there's, this isn't a small group. It's Jesus and his disciples. And so where could they possibly meet and convene? And then add to that the reality of how dangerous things are for Jesus right now. John 11, verse 57 says, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should report it and they might seize him. And so Jesus has a bounty on his head at this point in the story. If anyone could locate Jesus, find him in this massive crowd where there's no cell phones and no GPS and and the government can't find you as easy. So they need someone on the inside to report to them and they've made it known that they'll make it worth their while. And so you have lurking Judas waiting for a moment because none of the disciples know where Jesus is going to be. They know where he is and he's on the move, but they don't know where he's going to be in a prolonged time where he could be identified, located, and betrayed. And so that's why there's so much emphasis on Judas's behind-the-scenes scheming, because this location is a massive issue for Jesus's enemies. That's what's happening in the background, along with this holiday observation. 
that dates all the way back to the book of Exodus. Now you understand that the Passover lamb was instituted by God in the days of Moses and the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. It was to be done annually in remembrance of God delivering his people out of Egyptian slavery and into the promised land and into deliverance and into salvation. And that meal was an odd meal. And you can look at in the book of Exodus and get some of the details, but when you look actually past New Testament times, when we have more writings about Jewish traditions and uh, details about interpretation of how they did things, now we have a lot of clarity in what this meal would have looked like in Jesus' days. The simplicity of it in the book of Exodus, uh, those components will always be there. The, the lamb, the, the story of the doorpost having blood put on it, the angel passing over, killing all the firstborns except in the houses that had the blood spread, uh, the unleavened bread, some of those things. So I think it'd be helpful to show you what the Passover meal was like. The Passover meal was first of all hosted by the patriarch or the father or the the homeowner. So whoever was in charge was the one that was kind of running this meal because it was an intricate meal involving the passing of four different cups. And so the oldest person in the household, the, the father, would give a blessing. And you see that in Mark 14, because Jesus is clearly administrating not just the procurement of the place to do this, but the entire meal himself. I mean, he's the one leading this ritual. And, and the way it would go in the Passover meals, the oldest would give a blessing, and then the first of four cups of wine would be passed. And then they would be given unleavened bread, because there was no time if they were going to leave in haste running from Egyptian armies, finally able to escape slavery for them to put leavening agent yeast or whatever in their bread, put it in the window seal, put a cloth over it, you know, the whole rising bread thing. Because unleavened bread, you and I both understand, is bad bread, right? It's what we call crackers. Nobody likes that. So But intentionally, they prepare this in the same way to commemorate that night. And so they bring out the unleavened bread, and then they bring out bitter herbs. And those bitter herbs were were similarly intended to remind them of the, the, the hardships that accompanied their enslavement in Egypt the difficulties, the the beatings, the forced labor, the lack of freedom, that bitterness of those herbs were intended to remind them of uh, the hardships of their slavery. Uh, They were also served at this point in the meal a stewed fruit, uh, like some kind of maybe a compote would be the right word. And even that reddish, thick substance was intended to remind them of the bricks that they made without straw, the the difficult labor that was inflicted on them as they worked, not for their own advancement, but the advancement of their oppressors. And then there was some greens that were served along with a, a roasted lamb, the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb. And that roasted lamb was the lamb that was sacrificed by each family, its blood put on the door uh, in order to avoid the angel of death. And that blood covering marked out these houses where God would save and deliver. 
And when the meal was all set out, not a normal meal for for Israelite people uh, with strange ingredients and, and once a year and, and in an unusual way with the passing of the cups. When the meal is all set out after the blessing and the first cup was given, the youngest son in the house, whoever's the littlest, the youngest uh, among them, was supposed to ask a question. And the question was, why are we doing this? Basically, what does this meal mean? And the father would then take this opportunity to show as the meal unfolded and give interpretation of all the parts that I just gave to you. He'd offer a prayer of praise and they would sing a group of songs. They were called the Hallel songs. Psalm 113 to 115 was the first set of songs that were sung. All songs that speak of God's deliverance, of of the glory of being and belonging to God and and giving all praise and honor and glory to God for His salvation. And then another cup would be passed around. They called it the cup of blessing. And then the bread would be broken and the fruit would be served. And then a third cup would be passed and then the lamb would be served. And there would be a blessing and a thankful prayer given for the, the lamb. And then finally, uh, uh, another set of psalms would be sung, the second half of those same psalms, 116 to 118. And then a a final cup would be passed, uh, a final blessing and thanksgiving would be offered. And this all was supposed to happen before midnight. And so this very ornate and scripted and dramatic meal was something that every disciple would have had for the entirety of their Jewish lives. And in this case, it would have unfolded the way that they thought it would unfold in many ways, except that Jesus has taken some of the traditional parts of it and left it completely the same, like Jesus is the one as the rabbi who's leading the meal. Whoever the youngest disciple is, we don't know, would have been the one to ask that question. What does this meal mean? But Jesus is also taking this meal and redefining it. He's loading it with teaching that you find in, in John uh, 13 through 17. He's, he's also giving them these elements in a way where the focus is no longer on the past, but the focus is on the present moment, on the days to come, and on a powerful future uh, reality that Jesus is pointing at. And so when I say that the The idea behind the heart of this is the proclamation and celebration of the Savior. That's a transformation to move from an act of salvation in the past to focus on Jesus' saving work in the present. The death of the Lamb that avoided the wrath of God in Egypt was now being transformed to focus on the death of the Lamb of God. And as Jesus says in verse 22, as they were eating, He took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is My body. Jesus transforms this meal to focus on Himself to show them that all those lambs that were slain that night in Egypt... And all the lambs that were slain in history 
of this celebratory meal were pointing towards this one sacrifice, a celebration of salvation that was pointed towards a greater celebration as the Savior was being shown to them, the one who would die our death in our place, that Jesus was going to be crucified. He was going to die for the sin of his people. I mean, the anointing that happened with with Mary just before this seems to be that reminder of death that has a shadow over this entire passage. And so there's a proclamation and celebration of Christ as Savior, the one who died our death. Robert Bruce, you know him from the movie Braveheart. Robert of Bruce. He actually wrote a huge book on the Lord's Supper. And in it, he says that the supper is an evangelist. It's an evangelist. It preaches the gospel. It tells us the reality about how sin can be forgiven. And Jesus points this whole meal to himself and says that he's the Lamb of God. He's the bread. He's the one that will save and deliver in an ultimate sense. Not only is he the Savior that's proclaimed and celebrated, but second, I see Jesus as the one who's sustaining us in this passage. His procurement of the place is interesting, isn't it? There's so much detail about where they're going to meet, and part of that is the drama of you know, a bounty on Jesus' head. But look at how Jesus talks. He's in control entirely of this scene and every scene to come. And so you have to dismiss out of your mind any idea that Jesus was the hapless victim of circumstance or his enemies plotting or even Judas's rage and dishonorable betrayal. I mean, Jesus is in the driver's seat. The details are are interesting, aren't they? Verse 13, he sent two of his disciples, said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. There's some kind of prearrangement that Jesus pulled off here that he's in control of. He has things all appointed and figured out. The man with a jar of water on his head is a weird detail. It's like, uh, you know, the guys that have a bag that they carry like this. Como se llamas? Anybody have one of those bags on you today? No offense. I'm not, yeah, you got one. I knew there'd be some, some hip dude at UCLA, some good-looking cat that carries the man purse. I mean, you notice when a guy has one of those because guys don't normally and traditionally carry purses, right? Same with the water jug. No offense. None, none taken. The water jug was not carried by a dude. Ladies carried water jugs in their heads in the ancient world. And men would lug water in inefficient ways, in, in, in skins instead. It was just culturally how it worked. It's sort of like the difference between when a, a mom holds a baby and a dad holds a baby. Mom holds a baby perfect and supporting the neck. Dad holds a baby like a football. So just different ways of bearing water. They're going to run into a guy who's carrying a jar of water on his head. And I don't know if this is supposed to be kind of a sign, like he'll have on a a carnation and meet him for the mission kind of a thing. But Jesus has this all laid out and his, his sustaining and driving and implementing of this plan is, is very clear. 
There's an owner of the house that has been preordained to uh, supply this room, and the guest room is, is set up to a, a significant degree, so the disciples just need to do some final moments. And I think you see this in the pronouns that Jesus uses. Look at verse 14. They're supposed to ask, on behalf of the teacher, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover lamb with my disciples? I mean, this is, this is a bold and sovereign statement from Jesus. And he's appointing and making sure the preparations are set. And that's just the room in which they're going to meet, in which he'll address his disciples. He'll have this last peaceful moment of teaching as the drama of the crucifixion is right right in front of him. But it's not here where Jesus ceases to be in the driver's seat. Every moment of what's unfolding is under the sovereign hand of God, including Jesus' betrayal. And I think that's why it says in verse 17, when evening came with the twelve and they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me uh, who is eating with me. And then the, this, this unfolding with the dipping in the bowl and there's some kind of hushed conversations because the disciples don't understand what's happening according to John's account. Jesus says to Judas, what you do, do quickly. And Judas gets up and leaves. And so everybody assumes that Judas was sent on an errand, that he was going to go do something that he normally had as a responsibility, providing money for the poor or acquiring more supplies or whatever. But they're so torn up by Jesus's accusation of betrayal that every one of them thinks first about themselves, is it me? It couldn't be me. And when they look around the table, they felt the same way. Like, is it it can't be one of my brothers. Is it I? Verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it's written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. This is that perfect confluence of human responsibility, volition, and divine sovereignty that come together in, in one verse if you're looking for one like that. All of it orchestrated and guided by the sovereign plan of God. Nothing out of place. Everything exactly as it should be because Jesus is the one that sustains everything. And He's the one that upholds all of life. And in their participating in this meal, there is a kind of sustenance that highlights the life-giving, life-sustaining power of Jesus as the one who is our only Savior. They eat of bread and they drink of cup and they share and recline at the table. And there's a kind of sustenance that's happening that reminds us that this meal was given for these believers and they were to take it in and ingest it and participate in it in a full way. There is something in Jesus' sustaining that points to our receiving of this meal. And so he breaks the bread and blesses it and gives it to them. And they eat that bread. And he takes a cup and he gives thanks for it. And they drank, there's an emphasis in verse 23, on all of it. 
And so whether it's Jesus driving sovereignly his own betrayal or Jesus distributing equally sovereignly this meal that represents himself, his salvation, his work on the cross that will acquire forgiveness for all who will trust in him. As he says to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He takes a meal that already had salvific tones to it, but shows it to be leading up to this great moment of salvation. That it's for believers, it's to be participated in by receiving it. It's intentionally one where Jesus sustains us as he sustains all things by his sovereign power. Third and finally, what I see in this passage is a forward-looking sovereignty where Jesus' coming kingship is in view. You see it there in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' last meal, like a prisoner about to be executed, given that request of a final meal before they walk to their execution. Jesus highlights this meal as his very last one, his last drink of the fruit of the vine. But not forever. Instead, there's this pointed nature of this meal that looks not just back at accomplished acts of salvation, the cross. A meal that looks not just inward at a pensive, repentant expose of our own hearts and the need to be reconciled to God and to be aware of our forgiveness and to be reconciled to one another in in the family of God. But there's, it seems to be the most important part of this meal is its forward-reaching implications. Once it is identified as being representative of Jesus's death, of Jesus's blood, of Jesus's incarnate body broken on the cross for us, it then turns its posture towards a horizon in eternity that says that there's another and greater meal coming. There's something that this meal has in it that's truly inadequate. It's not complete. It's not final. It's why we take it over and over again, looking back at the once for all sacrifice of Christ, but we look future tense to a Revelation 19 moment that says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so here you have Jesus hosting this meal as the master of it, the head of the household, arranging every detail as the sovereigns, but pointing towards a time to come with these disciples around the table, not just watching, not just observing, not spectating, but partaking and holding this thing and and, and listening to Jesus and, and wondering what's going to happen next as, as the tension runs so high. 
not realizing until the days and weeks and months and even years to come that the question that that youngest disciple would have asked, what does this meal mean, would be expanded to include a band of disciples that would reach across the last 2,000 years of church history, across the face of this whole world, that would show us that there is a meal that points to a greater meal that is an enacted parable of feasting on Christ, of participating in His salvation, that there is a new exodus, a new covenant in His blood as Jesus takes this Passover tradition and turns it into something that Christians will do when they gather in their fellowship and relationship with one another and they'll revel in because they realize that when they take that meal, Jesus is with them in a very present way, in a spiritually present way. And it makes them long for a time when he'll be with them in more than just a spiritually present way, but in an actually present way. And so we look for the return of Christ and we celebrate this meal because Jesus has done everything that is necessary to accomplish and provide our salvation. And Jesus will fulfill his promise to return for us and rescue us fully and finally forever that we might sit at a table with him in heaven, in eternity, and celebrate all that God is in Christ forever and ever and ever. That's the establishment of this meal. That's the significance of this meal. And I think when you find its when you find its its origin story, when you understand why it was established in this way, you take it differently. And I think that the being entirely consumed with our own sin in a moment of reflection, which is a necessary moment, misses the tone that Jesus set here. The proclamation of Christ as Savior who died our death and to feed on Christ as our sustainer who upholds our our very life as we partake of Him and to look to Christ as the sovereign one who is returning, who promises to feast with us in heaven someday strikes a, a tone in this meal that I think is so instructive. In fact, I started with Spurgeon. Let me close with Spurgeon. Because he, he was concerned that his church would feel this meal rightly. And this is what he said about how it should feel to take the Lord's Supper. Because it is a sign. It's to be felt and seen and tasted. Here's what Spurgeon said. Whenever we repair to the Lord's table which represents to us the Passover. We ought not to come to it as to a funeral. Let us select solemn hymns, but not dirges. Let us sing softly, but nonetheless joyfully. This is no burial feast. These are not funeral cakes which lie upon this table. And yonder fair white linen cloth is no winding sheet. 
This is my body, said Jesus. But the body so represented was no corpse. We feed upon a living Christ. The blood set forth by yonder wine is the fresh life blood of our immortal King. We view not our Lord's body as clay-cold flesh, pierced with wounds, but as glorified at the right hand of the Father. We hold a happy festival when we break bread on the first day of the week. We come not here trembling like bondsmen, cringing before the Lord as wretched condemned serfs. They eat on their knees. We approach as freemen to our Lord's banquet, like his apostles to recline at length or sit at ease, not merely to eat bread which may belong to the most sorrowful but to drink wine which belongs to men whose souls are glad. Let us recognize the rightness, yes, the duty of cheerfulness at this commemorative supper, supper, and therefore let us sing a hymn. That night, the disciples were so uneasy But the Spirit would preserve everything that Jesus said to them. So that, until Jesus comes back, we could take the supper for all it's worth. And so that's my prayer, is that we would be able to do that. That every time we take the supper, we would remember this is a a meal that originates in a transformation that occurred that night before Jesus died with His disciples. And it was intended by Jesus to be something that points to him and his sustaining power and his salvation and his kingship to come. Father, thank you for your word. You instruct us well through the scriptures. You teach us how to to live and to abide in Christ and to find in him the sustenance and salvation that can be found nowhere else. God, I pray for any here who have put off repentance, put off faith in Christ, put off joining the church and participating in in this meal and declaring their allegiance to Jesus in baptism. Father, would you bring conviction and show them the glory and beauty of Christ? I pray that your kindness would be an encouragement to them. Your patience would be an example to them. Your forgiveness would be compelling as they rush to Jesus and plead for grace. And we know that when we ask you for grace, we find it abundantly given at your throne. So Father, thank you for the meal, the sacred meal, the special meal, the commemorative meal, the prophetic meal. And we long for your return. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.